Well, let's turn in our Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter uh, two. First Peter chapter two, as we continue in this series that we've entitled "Strangers." in a strange land. And I'm going to jump right into our text this morning, so I'm going to have you stand for the reading of God's Word as I read from the English Standard Version, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses, and I'm going to start with verses 1 through 8, but our focus will be on verses 4 through 8 this morning. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Father God, we once again declare our dependence on you in prayer. And Lord, I pray you've got a word for us this morning, and Lord, we need to hear it. Father, I've been struck through the study of your word how important the people in this place are to my life with you. Lord, I am not just a stone that you're working on, but you are working on a multitude of living stones. And Lord, as we gather together as living stones, let us be built into the spiritual house that you are building. Father, I pray that we would always remember that you are the foundation, that we would always remember that you are to receive all the glory, honor, and praise. So Lord, open our hearts this morning so that we may be a part of your building program so that we can see that program being built in our own lives, so that we can taste and truly see that you are good. Father, lead me in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As I just prayed, I want to look under the heading of God's building program this morning as we look at our text. And there are many times when someone will ask me about the uniqueness of my church. What, What makes your church different than... Uh, many other churches. And while we do a lot of the things the same as every church uh, that is meeting probably here in the Western world, there are some things that make us a little bit unique. One of the things that I love to share with people is that all of the buildings on our campus were built by our very own people. Some of you may not know that, but the room that you're sitting in and the foyer that you walked into was a building that was built in 1990 and 91. And it was built by the hands of men and women. I remember with my own eyes watching, and they let me help a little bit, not, not too much, uh, but they wanted to actually see the building get built. But it was amazing to see the hard work of men and women from our own midst who were able to uh, pour in a lot of time and energy 
into building this building. And I'm glad they did. They did a great job with it. We've never had leaking roofs. We've never had any of the major issues that a building project would have because this place was built with great quality in mind. And then many of you won't forget, uh, back in 2006, 2007, and the beginning of 2008, uh, we built our family life center in gymnasium. We did again without the help of any major general contracting, but a group of men and women, hundreds of them, during that time poured hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours of work into uh, the building of that structure, and we are blessed to have that. Now, it enabled us to do uh, something uh, very helpful. We saved, uh, just in the Family Life Center alone, about $2 million in building costs. And that was awful helpful for when the time of the mortgage came along. But even beyond that, instead of just simply saying we saved a lot of money, I am struck by the idea that we learned something in those building projects. There was a banner uh, on my high school gym that uh, every once in a while my coaches would point to, and it was the acronym TEAM that together everyone achieves more. And it had a flock of geese or, or something going on with those inspirational posters. But together everyone achieves more. And I learned that principle to be true as I've watched these two major building projects take place. The amazing thing is for those who hammered in nails, for those who painted walls and put in electrical outlets, they weren't simply doing a task of building a building. But think for a moment of the work that was done back in this building, uh, almost now it would be 20 some years ago, the ministry, the amount of hours, the amount of times the gospel has been presented, the amazing life change that has taken place. It is amazing when we work together, the ministry that unfolds each and every day. What a testimony to those who were working hard to build this place with a vision that one day in January of 2013, this place would still be standing and proclaiming the name of Jesus. Together, everyone achieves more. Did you know, though, that while we build buildings, God is in the process of building his kingdom today? Did you know that God is involved in a building project? Peter's been talking about it all throughout his letter in the first chapter. Just kind of peruse with me uh, some of the themes that we've seen in this first chapter. In this building project, we are now enabled, because he is building this, we have the opportunity to be born into a living hope. We are brought into an inheritance as a result of this building project that will never spoil or fade or perish. It's a building project that enables us, notice in uh, verses uh, 6 and 7, that we can endure all types of trials, all types of tribulations, and still rejoice because God is in fact on the move. It is because of the building project that God has begun and is continuing to build out that you and I can come to Jesus and love him deeply. It was this building project that the, prophet, the prophets prophesied about. It was this building project that the apostles preached about. And it is this building project of redemption that Christ calls us to believe. It is a building project that Peter says that the angels look into these things intently. Now the project was started a long time ago. It was started in eternity past when God chose for his son to be the savior. 
It was manifested in Christ and his incarnation. And one day, the great and glorious day when our salvation is revealed and fulfilled, that we will see the grand opening of the grand and glorious kingdom of God. Now what he is calling us to this morning is to join him in this project. He wants to tell us that we can be a part of it. But to be able to do that this morning, to be a part of his building project, we must be a people. Notice verse 22 of chapter 1. We must be a people who have purified our souls by obedience to the truth, and we must have a sincere brotherly love, loving one earnestly from a pure heart. And so Christ has called us into this building project but if we want to be a part of it, then Peter says we've got to rid ourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and all slander. God wants us a part of this building project, but he won't just take anybody. There's a certain way we are called to live before we can be a part of this project. Now, I want you to notice a couple things, three things this morning about this building project. Number one, let's look at the description this morning. Peter begins by reminding us who this building project is all about. All that the Father does, all that heaven is involved in, centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So where does Peter begin? He begins with the phrase, as you come to him. Well, who's the him? The only person we can come to, the only person that we can engage God's building project with is by coming to Jesus. Now let's notice a couple of things about who God says Jesus is. Notice Peter speaks of the condition of Jesus. He says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone. Now let's stop there for a moment. The word living there is the Greek word zao. And zao has a, a double meaning to it. It means living or life, and it speaks that whatever is being spoken about is amongst the living. It's amongst the living. Now, Peter speaks of Jesus as the living stone. What Peter is saying is Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. It's a great truth of Christianity that we do not serve uh, a God and a Messiah who is dead, but one who is alive as he promised he would be. Now, Peter, our author, didn't always believe this way. Peter had come to know on the night of Jesus' arrest, he had come to the realization that Jesus' final days were upon him. Peter believed that the end of the ministry of Jesus, the end of the life of Jesus was coming. He would hear, and in fact, he would even see some of it with his own eyes, the scourging and the crucifixion. And for a couple days, our author this morning would, would have the feeling and the belief that his master, his Lord, his teacher and friend was dead. He would feel the sting of death. He would feel the loss and the failure of betraying him and leaving him on a night when Jesus needed him most. But a day would come, a short time later, where Peter would see with his own eyes. After hearing from the women that the, empty, that the tomb was empty, Peter would then come face to face with not a dead stone, not a broken stone, but the living stone, the stone that would change his life forever. You see, let us not forget 
of what Peter is talking about this morning. Peter's an eyewitness to Jesus. He is the one that's sharing his story. And what Peter is reminding us today, Village Bible Church, is that we do not serve in a religion of a dead prophet or a martyr. But Peter says that when we come to him, we must come to him as to him who he really is, the risen one who is alive today. It would do good for all of us to be reminded of this truth. You and I, please hear me, you and I serve a risen king. Amen? We don't have to go to Mecca and look at a tomb and say that is where our prophet lives. We do not live in the spirit or the aura of our great prophet or teacher's teachings. No, brothers and sisters, while we may live according to the principles that he's laid forth, we have the great hope that our Lord and Savior, yes, he died on the cross, yes, he was buried, but on that third day, he rose again according to the scriptures, and that gives us the peace, and that gives us the hope that we sung about this morning, that we too will rise on eagle's wings. And that's why we have hope this morning, because we come to Jesus, a living stone. But I want you to notice this word zeo is a word that speaks of living or being alive, but it also isn't simply the idea of being alive, having a heartbeat, but it is that which gives life. And so as we come to the living stone, we come to this stone that gives us life. Jesus had shared this over and over again. We were to come to Jesus, who was the drink that would make us never be thirsty again. He was the living water. We were to come and eat of his bread, because we would never be hungry again. We were to come to him, where he might give us life, but life in all its fullness. We were to come to him, because he is not only the alive stone, but he is the stone that gives all that we need for abundant and healthy living. But notice, as he shares this about the condition of Jesus to his readers this morning, Peter goes on and he articulates a commitment among the Godhead. Notice in the middle of verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. In the sight of God. This phrase speaks of uh, the total intimacy and proximity of Jesus to the rest of the Godhead. Peter is describing something that is foreign to our world today. That is that the Godhead lives in perfect and sweet fellowship with one another. And God is going to speak about his son through the Holy Spirit into the words of Peter. Notice what he says. He says that he is the chosen one. Now here, before we move on too quickly, we can stand back and marvel at the utter communion that the Godhead, Godhead has amongst one another. But I want to remind us that yes, the perfect intimacy and the perfect love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Spirit and the Spirit has for the Father is the same love that you and I are called to this morning with one another. 
Remember John 17, one of the final times where Jesus shares with his disciples and he's praying what is called the high priestly prayer? And in John 17, he says, Father, that they would love as you and I love, that they would know each other as you and I know each other, that they would have communion as you and I have communion. And so we don't just sit back and marvel at the amazing love that the Father has for the Son, but it's a displayed, it's displayed for us this morning so we can have it for one another. Now notice, he says when he speaks of the Son, he is the chosen one. Another way to translate that is the choice one. The Father chose the Son because of his choiceness. What I mean by that is that the Father chose the Son because he was far more excellent than all things in the world. It speaks to that which that was given to us in Christ. Listen to me. What was given to us in Christ by God was the best he had. Do you understand that this morning? When the Father lavished us with his Son, it was what was the best in all of the universe. It was the best that heaven had to offer. Now, when we have guests in our home, we, we may go out of our way to give something better than maybe we give our own family. That's important to do. That shows hospitality. But when God looked at our sin, and he looked at our rebellion, and he looked at our unwillingness to follow him, God didn't send an angel. He didn't just send a prophet. He didn't just send someone who lived a good life, but he sent his one and only son, the best of the best, and he gave that son the best of all of heaven for you. If that doesn't warm your heart this morning, then there's some coldness in this January morning that you need to get out of your heart and head. Jesus is the chosen one. But notice he is also precious. The idea here is that he is to be honored by all others. And what that means, and this will be important as we continue to move forward, what God says is, you're the best, Jesus, and I'm going to give the world the best. And our obligation is to say, yes, he is the best. Yes, he is the precious one. Yes, he is the glorious one. Yes, he is the one that is inexpressible in human words or affection. He is the great one who came and put on flesh to become one of us. The hymn writer got it right when he said, fair are the meadows and fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. But Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Who can forget the, that which transpired on that day in the Jordan River? When Jesus comes and John the Baptist sees Jesus from afar and he says, Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And as Jesus entered into that water, what must have been transpiring in heaven? When the Son of God rises up out of the water, the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And the Father sang, this is my Son. 
as if, as if he's timbered all in the stands watching one of his boys play a game. That's, that's my boy. Look at him go. He's a chip off the old block. Now, that would be a good thing for God to say of Jesus. My sons may struggle with that. But that's him. I'm proud of him. Way to go. Listen to this one. He's the chosen one. He's the precious one. And him is life and life to all abundance. We see the father just lavishing his love upon the son. And we see him saying, it is my son who I am well pleased. Now notice Peter continues to go on. And he says in this description of this building program that finds itself focused in on the living stone of Jesus, seeing this commitment amongst the Trinity, we now see the centrality of Christ in all things. Notice, because he is the living stone, because he's chosen by God, because he's precious, his value is of inexpressible worth, God makes him something. Notice verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now Peter brings in a metaphor. And he says, hey, God is up to something. And when God brought Jesus and sent Jesus to this world, the building project really started to move into motion. Uh, the ground began to be worked up and, and the prophets brought forth the, the tilling of the ground and the moving of dirt as we see in building projects each and every day. And then it was time for the foundation to be laid. That foundation was begun in Bethlehem. It was started at the incarnation at Christmas where we see Christ being born of a woman to come and to redeem us who are under the law. And that foundation was built all throughout his life when he would preach to the people and he would show the mighty works that were done with his hands. He would do it in the way he taught, in the way he lived. And that foundation would be built and God is saying, everyone listen, everyone be abundantly clear on this. Where we find our foundation, where we find the beginning of what God is doing is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot of talk and a lot of misinterpretation of this fact. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus finds himself with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And we're not sure what brought on uh, this uh, question. Some believe that the disciples and Jesus had walked by a, uh, a building or a statue of Caesar. Remember, the whole town's named after Caesar Philip. Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, Philip. And Jesus must have used that opportunity to ask the question, who do people say that I am? Now, we've heard what the Father says of Jesus. He's the chosen and precious one. But the disciples begin to say, well, and this is what we do, isn't it, when there's a hard question uh, or a hard issue to deal with. We always have a friend, right? There's a friend. I've got a friend who's having a problem. Well, that's what the disciples do. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And the disciples are like, holy cow, that's a, that's a tough question. We don't want to get it right. 
So let's add. Some people are saying, there's some that say you're Elijah. And still others say you're one of the prophets. And then another one speaks up and says, some believe you're John the Baptist. But it's Peter, the author of this book, who I don't know how he said it, if he said it with a booming voice or with fear and trepidation, knowing Peter's personality, probably with all gusto, stood up and all dramatic said, no, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You see, what Peter is saying in Matthew 16, 18, and 19 is what God is saying of Jesus through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You're the chosen one. You're the precious one. You're the one who has come to redeem his people from sin. And it is there that brings all kinds of question and all kinds of confusion is Jesus' response. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there are some churches in our world, in fact, the vast majority of early church history held to the belief that what that meant was that Peter was the dude. That the, he was the rock. He was the one by which the church was to be founded upon. And even to this day, our Roman Catholic friends affirm this position, and this is what brings forth the Pope or the papacy. That Peter, being the rock, now is descended through his descendants, the other popes. But here's the problem with that. Number one, Peter seems to be an odd person to start a church on. Peter is a lot like you and I. Well, you Think about it for a moment. Peter one day is walking on water. And then the next moment, he's sinking. Peter's the one who says, Jesus, I'll go to the grave for you, man. Everybody else will leave, but I won't leave you. And then he deserts you. Peter is the one who says, hey, I understand this uh, flesh and blood have not uh, given me this truth, but it is with my own flesh, with my sword, that I'm going to try to keep God's kingdom from coming into existence when he cuts off uh, the soldier's ear. This Peter is a funny guy to start a church on. And it is this Peter, if you need a little more evidence that this isn't true, Peter is not the rock, the cornerstone. But notice what Peter says, Behold, I am laying in, a, in Zion a stone, the cornerstone chosen and precious. You want to believe in someone? Don't believe in another person. Believe in Jesus. He is the rock. In him there is no failure. In him there is no sin. Peter, yes, he's a stone. He is a stone like you and I. Is he an important one? You betcha. Peter's of vast importance within the church, as are the, all the apostles. But he is a living stone like one of us. A many stones being built up upon the living stone of Christ that will be built up into a spiritual house. Now notice he says he's the cornerstone. The building is only as good, I want you to understand this, and I don't know much about building, but this building is only as good as the foundation that it stands upon. I, I came to learn this uh, a couple years ago. Uh, we were building a barn. We went to, uh, I think it was Home Depot or Lowe's and built one of those uh, erector set barns, okay? If you don't know what you're doing, when they say anybody can build it, 
They're lying. So I worked on it, and it was not, it was Greek to me, okay? The instructions, man, it was as if I was reading the French instructions while building this thing. And I began to build it, and I began to put it all together, and I had some friends of mine helping me to build this thing. And for whatever reason, we couldn't get this thing to be straight to save our lives. And we came to the conclusion when everything was all said and done that the problem was not us, and I had builders tell me this, the problem was there was a problem with the materials that were sent. I had one of my guys, because when I began to build this thing, I just kept saying, well, it will straighten up on its way up. I had neighbors say, did we have an earthquake? Something's wrong with your barn. And I got so frustrated with it that I took the barn down. I just got so tired of it that it was so out of shape. And it wasn't incredibly bad, but it was bad enough, okay, that I took it down. And what I came to learn as I was taking it down was that there was one mistake. One of the boards in the foundation was shorter than the others. You see, when you build on something that is just not right, the rest of the building is going to suffer. That is why Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He is where the church is built upon. But I want you to notice that he says here, he's laying a chosen cornerstone, precious, but notice that it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. For those that have an NIV Bible with them, they're going to get some help that we won't get in the uh, ESV. And that is there's a double meaning to this word cornerstone. Cornerstone, yes, was the foundation, but that word cornerstone in the Greek could also mean uh, the final brick, the top brick, the capstone, as the NIV shares, the capstone of a building. And so what Peter is trying to acknowledge for us this morning and to tell us about is that we must recognize that Jesus isn't simply the foundation of the church, meaning everything we do is built upon what Jesus has done for us, but everything then rises to him. He's the cornerstone, and he is also the capstone. We found everything on him, and to him goes all the glory, honor, and praise. He's the beginning of the church, and he's the end of the church. Let all the world hear that Jesus isn't just a person of importance in history, but he's the cornerstone of history and redemption. And one day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, they will see that the stone that the builders rejected is not simply the cornerstone, but the capstone. He's the beginning and the end. Now notice we have now gotten a description of this project. Notice there's an invitation that is given. Our passage, now let's go back to verse 4, our passage begins with an incredible offer. It says this, as you come to him, a living stone that was rejected by men, but now is chosen and precious. As you come to him, I wonder if Peter was remembering back to Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, 
When Jesus said to the crowd that was harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, that Peter remembers the words when Jesus says, come to me, come to me all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, Peter is reminding us as people that there's been a great invitation that has been given. Come to Jesus. Come to this living stone. Now, Peter had seen many a people in his day come to Jesus. They would hear, they would see, they might even taste. But they would leave after the show was done. Were these the ones who had heeded the call? Of that coming? No, Peter had something very different when he thought of this invitation. When he called us to come to the living stone, Peter says there are two responses that come. I want you to see this this morning. First, the response number one to this invitation is you can receive this Jesus by trusting in him. Write that down. You can receive him by trusting in him. Now Peter says, as you come to me, this stone that is in Zion, this stone that the builders rejected, this precious cornerstone that is now the capstone, that the one who believes in this stone, the one who believes in Jesus, will not be put to shame. In fact, in verse 7 it says that he will also receive honor. That sounds like a great deal. All I got to do is sign up with Jesus and I'll receive honor and I'll receive these great fringe benefits and I'll be able to uh, use Jesus in a way to get the abundant life that I'm looking for. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not a stepping stone. He's the cornerstone. And so we can't look at Jesus as an end uh, to the means of what we desire in our life. But we need to pursue Jesus. Now, how do we come to Jesus? It is to be done properly. The Greek word there is prosercomai, and it speaks of one who is continually drawing closer to Jesus. It is not a one-time approach. It isn't as you came to Jesus in the historical or past tense, but it is a present one. As you continue to keep coming to Jesus... It speaks of an approach that is reverent, habitually coming to Jesus, reverent to the one that we have. And it it speaks of a desire that as you come in a reverent way, you are now desiring intimacy with God. Now, this is the model for every one of our marriages. Uh, the, The pursuit of every marriage is that we enter into this marriage with a sense of fear and trembling, a sense of the unknown. And so we're reverent as we come to the place of our wedding day. And then as we wake up each and every morning with our spouse, the desire is is that as you look over to the person, you don't say, well, I know everything about them, so I have nothing left to learn of this person. You say, I'm going to join again into a life of greater intimacy, of greater knowledge, of greater understanding of the person that I'm with. Even more than that, we are called when we enter into a life of Jesus is to grow in our intimacy and our knowledge of him. Now, it it continues to go on 
in this sense. What he's saying is, as you come to me, there are some things you need to recognize. Number one, he says in verse uh, 6, that when we come to this stone that, Jesus, that God has laid, that we are to come, and it says that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's stop there for a moment. What, what does it mean to believe? Because we want to come to him. We want to have the honor. We don't want to be put to shame. And so God says, you're going to come to this stone. You've got to come believing, but believing what? We are to believe that though he was rejected by man, though he was the stone that the builders threw by the wayside, Though the world says that Jesus is nothing more than a figment of some crazy's imagination, you say, I believe. I believe he's the Christ. I believe he's the son of the living God. This belief is not a one-time proposition. Don't tell me about a time in way past of history where you believed Tell me today who you believe. Tell me today where your hope is built upon. It is because of this ongoing, habitual, continual, present-day belief that should impact every facet of our life. That every moment of every day, out of that faith, that we live differently. This is what Paul was saying to Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 1, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him till that day. You see, the belief in the stone, that the stone is who God says he is, leads to trust. But trusting in what? Notice he says... In uh, verse uh, 7, the honor is for you who believe. Now this living stone is capable, and this is what our trust needs to be. Because we believe in the stone, as we've come to the stone, now we put all of our faith and all of our hope on him. That he is able to do that which he said he was going to do. The idea here in this word that is translated believe is to entrust oneself to Jesus in complete confidence. To believe with total commitment to the one whom you've trusted. That means Christ is the object of our faith because he is completely and utterly trustworthy. Charles Spurgeon, a, a pastor of a, uh, of a century ago, said this, put all your trust in Jesus for you will never have cause to regret doing so. The text in the Old Testament from which Peter quotes says he that believes shall not be put to shame. Now notice what uh, Spurgeon tells us. The one who trusts shall not need to be in a hurry or have undue concern or trouble. He shall enjoy the holy peace and leisure which springs from a quiet confidence in the one Jesus where all confidence is found. O beloved, he says, place all your trust on Christ. Rest your whole weight on him. For then, and I might add only then, the honor will be for you. You'll never be put to shame when you put yourself and your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. But notice, not everybody responds this way. And notice in our text it says, but for those who do not believe. 
the stone that the builders rejected. Peter has already told us in verse 4 that he was rejected by men. And now he says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter says, hey, as amazing as this is, this precious and chosen stone that God has placed into the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you would think everybody would want it, but they don't. And notice what he says. He says they're going to stumble over Jesus. They're going to have no use for him. He says the religious leaders, that is the builders, are going to reject him. And didn't they? The Pharisees and the, the leaders of Christ's day, the ones that should have been ready for Jesus and his kingdom to come, they said, we want nothing to do with you. You have no value to us. And they hung him on a cross with the help of evil men. But yet God made Christ the savior of the world anyway. Christ allows and causes men to stumble because they choose to disobey. And the text tells us that they were destined to do this from the beginning. Now let's understand this before we go too far. There's a couple things. The word rejecting. When it says that they were, that he was rejected by men. When he was rejected by the builders. That word rejecting is the word apodokizomai. It's a long compounded word. Apodokizomai. And it means to examine and deem as useless. What it means is that the world judged Jesus and saw something or someone that was not fit, worthy, or genuine, something that only recourse is to reject it. It means that they were to throw off Jesus as a result of a test. They tested Jesus, and then they said, we don't want him. We repudiate him. We disapprove of him, and they declared Jesus useless. What Peter is saying is, this rejection was not a one-time rejection, but that the unbelieving world over and over and over again is in a continual and habitual rejection of the person and work of Jesus. They want nothing to do with them. Who cares that God says he's chosen? Who cares that God says he's precious? What the world says is Jesus is garbage. We want nothing to do with him. Now let's notice verse 8. The last statement that comes is one that makes us bristle a little bit. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I see perfect balance in this statement. There's the human side. They disobey the word. There's the divine side as they were destined to do. The human side, you and I easily understand. We see people reject Jesus every day. But the divine side bothers us. We recoil from statements like that because you and I value, as humanity, our freedom. So we'd like to think that if anybody goes to hell, they do so almost as if by accident. And yet Peter wants, and hear me out this morning, that men cannot, he wants to emphasize the truth that men cannot overturn God's purposes by their unbelief. 
Though they reject Jesus, though they crucify him, nevertheless, God made Jesus the cornerstone of the church and the capstone of salvation. Listen to me what I'm saying. No unbeliever will be able to ever say, see, I messed up God's plan. He thought I was going to be one of those living stones, but I'm not. Forget it. I don't want nothing to do with you. I know I was supposed to be a part of this building program, but I'm not going to be. What Peter is saying is there are no gaping holes in the building that God is building. There's no gaping holes in the temple of God. All whom God has chosen will eventually be saved. That's the truth of Scripture. None of the elect will ever be lost. None of them will ever be snatched out of the Father's hands. And those that do go to hell, as sad on our part as that is, those will discover that though they chose to disobey, God has the final word. That if there must be damnation in this universe, it is better to understand that it is by God's choice, not by ours alone. Now there's a warning in this for us. The stone that saves some also causes some to stumble. Notice we reject him by tripping over him. You see, the world rejects Jesus because they see him as worthless, that he's not very precious at all. But the value of something isn't seen by the checking of opinion polls. The world was wrong about Jesus 2,000 years ago, and brothers and sisters, the world is still wrong about Jesus today. And yet the world is going to learn on a day of God's choosing that you can't be neutral about Jesus. There's a choice that needs to be made. The choice to come to him and be saved or to reject him and trip over him And I say this with all love and grace and sincerity. On that day, the Spirit of Almighty God will crush those who rejected him and send them to a place of eternal agony and pain. That's what Peter is telling us this morning. But herein lies the good news. Let me just close with this. There's a transformation. Stick with me this morning. I know it's a little longer than than we usually go, but just stick with me here for the next couple minutes. Instead of rejecting Jesus this morning, for any of you who have never followed Jesus Christ, ever trusted or believed in him, you can receive him. And in receiving him, you can become a living stone. It says in the text that uh, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We live and we have the opportunity to be a part of God's building program. And when we bow the knee to Jesus, Jesus adds us to his house that is being built up. And when we are transformed, we are able to answer two very fundamental questions this morning. The first question is, where do I fit? Where do I fit? Notice he says, you're not just one stone, but you are living stones. No matter our background, whether we're male or female, old or young, all of us gather into this place as people who have been changed because we have come to the one who gives life. 
And now God says, now I'm taking you and you and you and you. And I'm building you up into a spiritual house. And so maybe right now you're a small stone. There's room for that. And maybe you've grown and God has grown you to be a bigger stone. Well, God has a place for you. And what he's trying to tell us is this, a stone can't be on its own. A stone can't do it on its own. And yet 81% of Christians were recently surveyed and they said that they could get all that they need out of the Christian life by doing it alone. That is not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that Lone Ranger Christianity is a lie of the devil. That we need one another. That we are being built into something that's greater than ourselves. And so I need you and you need me. And so the question is this morning, is if my stone was taken out or your stone was taken out, would that wall collapse? You see, a lot of us say, well, of course I'm a living stone, but we're not pouring anything into it. We are not doing what God has called us to do. And as a result of that, the stone could be taken out and nobody would ever know the wiser. But hear and understand this. You and I cannot experience God without one another fully. What I mean by that is we can experience God in our personal walks with Jesus Christ, and that is true. But God did not bring us into salvation for isolation, but for community. C.S. Lewis, the famed author and theologian, put it this way. He speaks in a book called Four Loves, of a friend, circle of friends that he has. And he says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can truly bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights other than my own to show all of his facets. So what he's saying is, is that he's in a circle of friends. And, he, and he's gonna speak of a guy named Charles and Ronald. And what he's saying is, is I need Ronald to bring out the Ronald part of Charles so that I can see all of Charles. I can't see all of Charles without Ronald. And Ronald can't see all of Charles without me. Does that make sense? Okay? We need each other, and we need a group of each other to bring out that which is in the individual. Now notice what he says. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles's joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself because Charles is no longer there, I don't have to worry about him, he's away, I have less of Ronald. Stick with it. Because in this, friendship exists a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. The only way that I'm going to experience God is as I watch you taste and see that the Lord is good. And the only way you're going to see the fullness of God is when you see in me that I see and taste that the Lord is good. We need one another in ongoing community, in ongoing fellowship, and interaction so that we can fully experience the glory of God. What that means is God's building a house. And he's building this house, and the only way we are going to see the full glory of God in this house is when we see that glory in one another. Now notice what he says. For every soul seeing God for who he is in her own way, 
doubtless communicates that vision to all the rest. That is why an old author says that the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. Because one is seeing the holiness from one vantage point, so he's telling the other angel, I see it from this vantage point. And they are able to see a greater sense of God's holiness as they cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy. So here's the practical implication. We here at Village Bible Church unapologetically believe in that which is called church membership. Not so that you can vote or you can be a part of uh, this group of people so that we can have some level of representative government and democracy. But we believe in it because what church membership does is it's a tangible way to live out what we're talking about. That I want a relationship with God. I want to come to the living stone. The one that the builders rejected, I'm coming to him, but I can't know him. Hear me out. I can't know him if I don't have brothers and sisters who have committed with me in a pursuit of knowing the Almighty. And so what church membership here at Village Bible Church is, I don't know what it is at other churches, but what it is here is a commitment, an ongoing commitment that I'm going to pursue God with the help of my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to do it on my own. Because it's unbiblical to do that on our own. But we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to spur us on, to love one another, to pursue one another, so that we can pursue the living stone and to follow him faithfully forever. That's what membership here is all about. And that's why it's so important, because we can't do this on our own. God is building a house, a spiritual house, and we fit in this plan. Notice finally, and i got to close, it's, we also see how do I function. How do I function? Notice our job description. We'll get into this next week, so we won't take a lot of time. Our job description is simple, to be a priesthood. The Latin word for priest is the word pontifex. That's where we get the pontiff when we speak of the Pope in Rome. He's the pontiff. He's the head priest. But literally, that word simply means to be a bridge maker. And so my question this week for you, my application for you this week, is are you a bridge maker? And what that means is are you a kind of rock that is being built up into the home, uh, the house that God is building, are you doing that in such a way that is helping other living stones draw closer to God, to become closer to Him, to pursue greater intimacy with Him? Are you drawing close to God, and in your drawing close to God, bringing others along with you? That is how we are to function. We are to share spiritual sacrifices, offering our bodies, we are to give praise and to give generously. We are to share with others. We are to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to love one another because we are imitators of God. And we are to be priests who go on the behalf of others to draw all closer to God. So are you a part of this building project this morning? God is at work. And he's looking for us to join him as living stones that are brought together so that we may see the house that God is building. Place all of our faith and trust in it. And one day, in its full fruition, to praise the name of the cornerstone that has become the capstone of what 
has become of the spiritual house. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray, as you know my prayer has been this week, that my hearers would hear what I've said today. Father, I pray that I did so in a clear and concise way so that the hearers may hear what your word has to say. Lord, I hope I unpack this well so that my brothers and sisters in Christ may hear truly what our focus and desires should be. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the stone, that though the builders rejected you, that you are the one who has been lifted high and you are seated at the throne of your Father at his right hand. Father, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to die for us. Even though we were slaves to sin, even though we were hostile towards you, you sent the precious one of heaven that would die on our behalf, that we might become living stones. Lord, as we leave this place, let us be the living stones that you call us to be. Let us honor you with all that we say and do. Let us rid ourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and all slander as we fervently love one another so that, Lord, when the opportunity is right, we may be able to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. Lord, thank you for showing us this project, for giving us an opportunity to engage in this program of redemption. Now send us forth into this world being reminded of this job and give us the spirit that we need that will empower us to be faithful to the cause. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.